Everything's a meme to you, including <laughs> my country of birth. I have never been to Canada, but... You've never been to Canada ever? No, I've never set foot in Canada outside of you the You should airport. go up to Montreal for the weekend. I've wanted to. I imagine it's one of those places like Portland that I imagine I would like. Got a little taste of Europe. What do they call it? Eurocore? Well, you guys, let's get to the topic. I think Troy just doesn't want to talk about the unity thing because it's about the executive class losing out against the people. I think Troy doesn't want to talk about it because I want Vanya to play his reaction to when Alex laid out like how the developers were getting screwed over. What, what was my reaction? I really just wah, 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 wah. <laughs> So, Alex, the, the good guys and gals won. I hate gals. The good people won in this, at least seemingly. But let's yes. unpack this just a, really quickly because this guy, Rich Shetielli, it seems like there was a lot going on here other than actually one instance where the developers on a platform actually have, have some leverage. First of all, to understand gaming as an industry and as a community, it is famously a bunch of people that get very, very angry and very, very quickly and burn the house down. The, the gaming industry is a little bit like the French. Somebody tries to extend the retirement age by two years and Paris burns. And so, I mean, even, even gamers themselves are known to be right assholes when anything happens that they don't like. So I wasn't surprised by the pushback. An interesting thing here is when YouTube changes stuff, you will often get the creators kind of respond to it and get very... Why are uh, they like that, Alex? Because they're all tweaked gamers. down on a game where they kill everything in front of them? Why are they like that? Because they're angry young men that play games all day? Yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of that, for They've sure. They've been slurping down Mountain Dew all weekend. I mean, Well, I think ugh. it's also like... When you get angry, should I rack it up terrible. to your gaming mentality? I'm, I'm bringing it up to... I'm trafficking um, in, like, crass look, gamer stereotypes. I understand that in media, you're actually only dealing with, like, 10% real people and the rest are bots, but, like, in <laughs> Gaming, like we actually have a lot of people that respond to it. Here's why I think this matters. I'm not passing a judgment call on what how gamers behave. I've I've said enough about that. Follow me on on threads if you want to hear my hot takes. <laughs> First time that's ever been heard. But uh, but I think here's what happens. In this case, the platform fucked with the creators, and the feedback didn't only come from creators which is what ha usually happens when YouTube or Facebook does something, right? Facebook changes something and a bunch of people at some like media companies start complaining. The readers don't care. There's no huge uproar. In this case, there was a massive uproar by both the game developers and millions of gamers. I think that probably helped make this less tenable than it would have been. I think either way, it was so badly handled and they had to walk back so much of it that it was clear that the only thing that they could do next was fire the CEO. I think they bought Wait, wait, no, he, he, he retired. He's, yeah, he, he abrupt, retired. He yes, abruptly yes. retired, which I love. Yeah, I love these days. But, I, I want to I get to that point because I think, but just a real quick aside, because I love asides, is I think it's time that we stop with the euphemisms for people being fired. Let's just admit that like people get fired We've all been fired before. And there are these stupid euphemisms where I know when you were like writing, when I'd be like writing, if you weren't sure someone was was fired, it was they exited, which means they were probably yeah. fired. The key thing that annoys me and people get fired and, and blunders get made. But once again, it's somebody that has been in the gaming industry for nearly 15 years and has never shown a passion or curiosity for game development for games themselves. I'm not saying everybody has to, but like if you're going to take on the job, like I think okay, the guy created a stupid policy and then brought it to market without any sensitivity. And so he lost his job, whether he quit or was forced out or whatever. That's my understanding of it. But, and, uh, Brian, and, when, when, you were, when you ran the companies you did, you cared about the shit that you were outputting. He's not, he never ran a country, he's a peon. A, a company, I, a you, company. Thank you, Troy. I'm glad you're coming around to my peon class identity. No, you're the one that's. I only say that because just to make fun oh, of no, yourself. No, you can't take it back. You can't take it back. No, that's your self-constructed persona on the podcast. View from yeah. economy. Yeah, well, it's better than being the overlord, right? I guess my one question on this is: 
are there fewer game developers? Because the reason the platforms can screw with creators, I think it's a really interesting point you make about the fans being up in arms. And I don't know if that's totally true, but I'll have to check it out. But it's just the sheer number. It's like why the ad boycotts never work for Facebook and Google. They've got millions of advertisers. This isn't CBS. Like you can't like choke them off with anything. It's just leverage. Are there, is there more leverage in the gaming industry? Chris has a hard stop, and I love this gaming <laughs> talk, but it's like kind of boring. Yeah, there's more, there's more leverage. I love that media bias when the gaming industry is bigger than the music and the movie industry combined. So, you know, wow, wow. Yeah. I guess it's more important to talk about stuff that a few thousand people pay attention to. We got to talk about the recipes. <laughs> Great vibe to bring it. I actually really like, I like Chris Kimball. I used to watch him on America's Test, Test Kitchen all the time. Are you going to intro him, Troy? I can. I yeah. haven't really prepared. Why did you want to have have Chris on? You should have an intro. I like Milk Street. It's an actually well-designed digital property, which tells me that it has nothing to do with advertising. He opportunistically jams in some programmatic, but it's certainly not an ad-dependent organization. How it's reasonably well-designed. He has a lot of platform problems because he's fairly hostile to technology. That was Chris great. Is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Chris is there for the content and the cooking and the, the making and the, the whole enterprise, not for having to build a platform to support his vision. Can, yeah. can you see if he's at the door, Alex? I mean, there's no door, but yeah, I don't see anyone. Oh, so wait, you said he was in the green room. This is a joke. Oh. Did you send him a link? I'm a litter. What, which is the, the link that you... Squadcast. texted it to you. Yeah, it's the one you had done before. We switched from Riverside. This is riveting podcasting. Yeah, we don't have to include this. Well, I was hoping to get Squadcast as a as a partner. So, buddy, leave it in. <laughs> I mean, less of a partner. It's a branded utility. Is he there? Yeah, hi, Chris. I can actually see your eyes now. It's a little thing you do. Who, me? No, on, I, I, on your podcast homepage. All right, guys, this is Chris Kimball. Meet Chris Kimball, the one and only Chris Kimball. Yeah, nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, Chris. You know, like in most things, Chris, people develop personas when they when they start podcasting. And part of Alex's persona is he despises advertising. And Brian Morrissey is a big fan of it. Just I love it. I love selling ads, so we can talk about that, well, Chris. Because I know you don't. I don't like selling like ads because I'm really bad at selling ads. There's a reason. <laughs> That's why I love it, Chris. By way of introduction, I don't have a long-winded thing here to tell people who you are and what you've accomplished and how great you are. You know, I love you. Just for some context, I've had the pleasure of working with Chris for the last, I guess, couple of years, Chris, as he's you know endeavoring to build a new kind of media business. This is one that called Milk Street that I think in its construction and its kind of revenue structure is very modern, but in many ways is kind of entirely consistent with the kinds of media businesses that Chris, you've been building since you were like a deadhead or since you what, were like what do you a mean, cab since driver. I was a deadhead. The old days. <laughs> it's not past tense. <laughs> you know, we find pockets of Kimball fandom everywhere and you find it in my house. There was a time when we were learning to cook and Cooks Illustrated was kind of was the go-to source for that. And myself and my wife are huge fans of the publication. And we used to buy Chris at, I think we were probably subscribers, but we often bought it at Whole Foods where it was always featured prominently in the checkout aisle. When you told me this story, there's two things that always, many things that stand out in my mind when I think about you. But one of them is your insistence on what is required of media to have a kind of subscription proposition that in that it has to have a transformative promise and we can get into that in a sec and the other was the story that you told which i'd love to start with chris if we can which was why you pivoted with cooks illustrated and turned it into the format that it ultimately became and that ultimately made it so successful yeah well i was publishing in the 80s a magazine right with advertising so I'd print a lot of paper and pages and postage, and it occurred to me that I was competing with Condé Nast and everybody else on an uneven playing field with the advertising. And the entire American magazine system was based upon giving away the subscription to get the volume of eyeballs to sell the advertising, which completely undermined the value of the content. So when I relaunched it in 93, I, first of all, wanted to create something unique. So it was 32 pages plus cover. I took out all the color. It was a food magazine, no color. I wanted to focus on useful content, not lifestyle and travel. And I wanted people to pay for it to enhance the perceived value of the content. And my whole proposition was, 
It's not about how many recipes, it's which recipes. It's not about how many pages, it's which pages. And so I charged 20 to $30 per year for six times a year for 32 pages, all in black and white. Incredible. And I also felt that magazines in the United States, not true in Europe, the United States had devalued themselves so much by giving away subscriptions for five or $10 a year that I didn't want it to look like a magazine. I wanted it to look like, actually I based it on a publication from the Brooklyn Botanical Garden about how to trim shrubbery. <laughs> it was in black and white. It was like a lithograph. It was just, you know, one of those little monographs, but it had immense value because the, the crappier it looked, the more valuable the content. I mean, if, if you get a scientific paper that comes out, it doesn't look great, but it has a lot of value. So I figured by turning it into black and white and using illustrations, et cetera, the content itself would feel more valuable than if you have beautiful color photos. So the less lifestyle it was, the more people would pay for it. So yeah. eventually I got to a million circulation, you know, over a million circulation paying 25 bucks a year on average, probably for 32 pages plus cover six times a year. And that was because the perceived value was high and its actual value was high because we help people solve the problems of how to cook. So a million times $25 with low production cost meant probably a pretty profitable business. And then over the years, Chris, what would you offer as the most important way to think about selling a piece of content to someone? What does it take to sell a magazine subscription? And what do you focus on? Magazine or anything else? How do you think about it? And it's probably through the lens of, you know, lifestyle content. But like, what, what did you teach me about that like five years ago? My feeling about media is that all media is about transformation. A bridal magazine, a fashion magazine, a health magazine, sports and fitness magazine. Everybody wants to be somebody else. Everybody is in the process of transforming themselves. My wife does it on an hourly basis. You know, she's, it's one diet after the other. It's one exercise regimen after the other. So if you can help transform somebody, the promise is you'll be a different person by consuming this content. That's as high a perceived value as you could possibly offer. There's nothing better than that. So at the heart, I think of almost any successful media company is that idea. So in the world of food, it was gonna be, hey, the reason you don't feel confident in the kitchen, it's not your fault. It's because the recipes you're using don't work. So we test our recipes 40, 50, 60 times. Since our recipes work, you will be a better cook and you will transform not just your cooking, but the, the thing we never said explicitly was, we'll transform your view of yourself. You'll be a more confident person, a happier person, a more popular person, because who doesn't like a good cook, right? So that was the, the nut, the core, like every media company has an unstated promise or concept at its heart, and that was ours. And I think that's true of any successful media, any information-based media company, is that unstated promise of personal transformation. At least that, in a world of, in a pyramid of what's most important, that would be at the top. That's cool. Brian, how did that sit in your media brain? I was a subscriber. It's funny because you talk about, and I think it's sort of coming to where we are now. And I think about newsletters a lot because I just like take it to my own little world. And I think like stripping away all the frippery of media like is where a lot of it is right now. And I thought, I thought there was added credibility because it didn't have all of the high gloss of, I didn't get the other food magazines. I didn't think they were for me. But this, I was like, oh, well, the fact that it's like more like stripped down to me gives them more credibility and more authenticity than the, like I remember the first time I saw the, uh, what do they call it? The, the people who prepare food, you know, they're spraying it down. And, and oh, the stylists, food stylists. Yeah, the food stylists. Like the, I didn't even know food stylists that exist, exist. But the fact that food stylists exist just sort of, it lends itself to that like unreality of it. And I think it like makes it less tangible to people. Chris, when you started with Milk Street, same idea, but kind of new culinary territory. I'm interested in like how you arrived there, but equally interested in, in how it became, you know, like every media, there's the media and the thing that pays for it. And then before you had your media, 
and you had connected related media because you had a television show on PBS and that filled the funnel. And then you had your actual sellable media item, which was your, your magazine. And today the pieces exist, but the mechanic of how you monetize it is different because a lot of what you're doing, you're still selling membership or subscription, but now you've branched out and decided to be a store. And I think it's really interesting to talk about that. First, the premise of Milk Street, but also the e-commerce part, because there's tons of roadkill here. Like, you're going to do this. It seems to be working. The team is, has had to do all the things with, you know, I've been there with you. It's been an incredible learning experience. But I think most media companies that earnestly embark on an e-commerce vision, it'll either be a rounding error in their business or it will fail. And I'm curious to hear about that journey, like starting Milk Street and why you made it an e-commerce business. That's insane. Why didn't you tell me this seven years ago? Jesus. <laughs> right. I'd be so much richer and happier today. Yeah, you should have done programmatic instead. Yeah. <laughs> I love programmatic. It speaks to everything I, I really believe in and think is authentic. Well, the, the editorial concept of Milk Street was the world's getting smaller because the social media in the digital world, all cooking around the world is going to be a mashup. So we're not going to have segregated cultural groups. You'll take something from Japan, you'll take something from Bangkok, you'll take something from Oaxaca, et cetera. And so you're going to get this cross-cultural mix. And it's not going to be you know one expert from Mexico, one expert from India, one ex it's going to be thousands of voices. And so we need to get out because we're going to create a new way of cooking, which is a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's not just the recipes from other places. It's the techniques. It's the approach to cooking. It's how you think about food. It's about what kind of flavors you put together. In fact, the whole premise of traditional American cooking was mostly French, which was take a bunch of high quality ingredients, a lot of heat and a lot of time, and you develop flavor. That's not how is, the world is, is that true, Alex? You're yeah. French. That's true. I was, do, do I get fact-checked here every couple minutes? <laughs> no, what Troy, Troy's joking because he knows I have no idea, but I am <laughs> French. <laughs> so if you think about other cultures, you know, there's no spices in French cooking. There are no chilies in French cooking. There are no fermented sauces in French cooking. Other places start with big flavors. And so the, the cooking process itself is not there so much to develop flavor. It's there to combine things that already exist. So it's a whole different way of thinking about it. The second part is, if you're going to do e-commerce, it seems to me, and, and be a, a content company at the same time, the two things have to mesh inextricably. For us, we go around the world to discover new ways of cooking, bring it back, and we're going to change the way you cook. That's our tagline. Well, ingredients, cookware, tools, all of that is synchronous with bringing back recipes. So if you're in Cambodia, you bring back peppercorns. If you're in Japan, you bring back knives. So all of that stuff in the store is fully integrated with the content we're offering through the recipes and the articles. So the two really do go together. And our expertise with the content on one side transfers easily to the store. I, I think that makes sense. So if we say, this is a Nikiri vegetable knife from Japan, we can say something intelligent about it because we've actually been there and been to the factory and talked to the person. So that's what makes the e-commerce work is our expertise on the content side transfers easily to the e-commerce side. But when you started, you probably thought it would be easier to get those people that were reading your content and using your recipes to go shop for stuff. And I think to some extent that actually didn't turn out that way. Well, we started out with a licensing idea, which was the world's dumbest. You know, when, when you look, you look at the percentages and everything else. It's a terrible idea. What is that? When I went to the cooking store and I saw your meat thermometer or whatever, yeah, yeah, is that yeah. that was it? The, the problem with that is you can't control the cost of goods. You can't control the marketing. You just get a six percent at the end of the day, unless you're dealing with someone who's selling milli millions of units. It's just not a way to make money, and you can't control your brand. That's the other problem. So. It turns out the way to make money is to create your own products. We also sell other people's products, but the real core of the business is to design and create your own products and have them manufactured at, at a cost that allows you to spend money on the marketing, which is really essential. If your margins aren't good, if you're dealing with a 40% cost of goods, you don't have enough left over to go to Facebook or Instagram or wherever 
to market the product so or Amazon. So you need to be at a 20% or lower cost of goods and you have to have a unique product that really resonates in the marketplace. That, that, that's the heart and soul. In, in that regard, they really are independent businesses because you do have a component of your model that is reading your, tra- your content organically and saying, hey, it's interesting that I can also get this knife or this spice or something in the store. But really the act of selling those SKUs is an independent, yes. focused effort. It's, totally. I just think that's really important to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. And can you, can you explain that a bit? Like wh- you, there were a bunch of bumps on the road. Like you, it wasn't always easy to sell stuff. Five years ago, anybody could sell anything on Facebook. It was just a waterfall of sales. The acquisition cost was low. The return on ad spend was high. And about two years ago, with the changes in iOS and other things, you know, Facebook crashed and burned because they no longer had data on millions of people and they had fewer pieces of data on each person, which meant that Facebook had a hard time finding lookalikes for your advertising. We made the mistake of going to agencies to place these ads, but the agencies weren't able to give us enough vertical expertise with our brand to really figure it out. And it also turns out the creative, the ads you create are absolutely critical and those have to be done in-house. You can't send those out. So we eventually hired our own buyers about a year ago, got really good at the creative part of it. And that business is a totally its own business. Facebook is a totally different thing, world than Google, nothing in common. Google changes monthly, Facebook, changes, Facebook just went through a whole bunch of changes two weeks ago, we're trying to sort out now. So managing that process has nothing to do with the rest of the business, it's its own independent business. And you got to control it from soup to nuts. You can't let it out of your grasp because the difference between a good ad and a great ad is the difference between 5,000 units a month and 500 units a month. It's got to be done well. And what you're saying, is, so I understand clearly that the actual content that you create doesn't really act as that much of a meaningful funnel into the product side of the business. You have this kind of subscription content business and then this product business. And these are two very separate businesses with not a lot of overlap. For the most part, yes. I mean, creating the content puts us in touch with people and products we see in our travels. So it's a way of opening the door. But in effect, you're correct. They're totally different. You must be measuring some sort of a brand affinity that gets created by the content, though, right? Where I will trust trust the product more because it is connected to the brand, right? Absolutely. The the underlying brand loyalty is very helpful in the world of e-commerce. But running the e-commerce has nothing to do with running an information brand. Two totally different businesses. And developing those products is really its own business. Yeah. It's kind of similar to B2B media models. You know, that's where my experience is. And like a lot of B2B media models are events businesses at the end of the day. And the events business and the information content side are kind of different businesses. But they're inextricably linked yeah, because they sense. give an event. Otherwise, you're just someone who rents a room in a Hilton or something. Well, it's like the Atlantic, right? Yeah. And so like, I think the interesting part of what you said is how do you keep those things inextricably like as a brand you know, together? Because I think a lot of times, mode, we talk about mode on this podcast a lot. And when someone is reading an article, even a recipe, I think... We want to think that they're in shopping mode, and that's why we see all of the the shopping lists. I just wonder if it's they're two different modes. Like just because someone is is reading an article on Milk Street doesn't necessarily mean that they're in shopping mode, even if it mentions the nut. That's an excellent point. Way to go, Brian. Yeah, that Thank was you. really good. I can be quiet for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's enough from you. Yeah, that's all I got, Chris. <laughs> that's enough. Yeah, you qualify. I got two more one-liners, and then I'm out. I mean, if you look at it, we have like thousands of recipes on our site and we will highlight an ingredient you can buy in the store and you click and go to the store. It turns out that that funnel is not that helpful because when people are cooking a recipe, they're not in shopping mode. You're absolutely right. Usually it's people coming directly to the store, not from a recipe on the content site, but that's where the traffic is. And that is generated, 50% of that traffic is generated by paid media, 50% by our own in-house marketing. But that transfer from a recipe in cooking mode to shopping mode is weaker than we thought. You know, Chris, it's interesting that, you know, all media, most businesses are based on enterprising folks that find hacks that make them work. 
And, you know, the longer the hack lasts, you know, hopefully the more time you have to build a moat around your business. And it strikes me that you just described one around pulling all the costs out of a subscription publication so that it could you know, that it delivered on a brand promise, but made money at the same time. And there was another part of your business that was really interesting, which was you found PBS to be the brand builder and the top of funnel kind of activator. How has that changed now? How do you see that challenge as, you know, streaming comes on and the and cable, you know, evaporates and media fragments? And how do you manage brand building today versus, you know, when the show was reaching, I think, America's Test Kitchen at the time was what, hitting 6 million people a week or something like that? No, we, we were hitting 1.8 million I, you know, people a week, something like that. Milk Street does a million a week. I mean, 10 years ago, everyone was saying PBS is dead. It's over. It's for 65-year-olds, which is actually true. But there are more 65-year-olds every day, oddly enough. So I said 10 years ago, no. I said PBS is one of the most powerful brands in America, the worst marketed, underdeveloped, best brand ever. Because it's it's one of the, other than ESPN, for example, it's one of the only destination brands on television. Television does, is not destination, it's streaming now. People will turn on public television, leave it on all day. So we get a million where, people in Vermont do that or where, where do they do that? Well, you have to be over 60, first of all, let's yeah. just be clear. But we get, I get a million viewers a week. Now you compare that to any cable channel or anything else and a million viewers a week is a lot of viewers. It's so, more than primetime CNN. Yeah. So has, has that gone down a little bit? Uh, not much. It's been pretty steady year after year. And we, we get those viewers and they come to the website for the recipes and it continues to be a, a top of funnel. The difference is, of course, we have lots of other ways of getting top of funnel, but that audience is extremely loyal. It also adds an authenticity and a credibility to the brand because we're on public television. So there's a lot of trust there. And yeah, they're older, but I'm, I'm happy to have a 62 year old who's got a lot of money watch my show and whatever. Right. I, I don't care about age. It doesn't matter to me. I just care about whether they like to cook. I, I think it's one of the least understood, undervalued brands in the media world is public television. I love it. But at the same time, you had the team had to kind of learn the vocabulary of social media and Instagram in particular. You guys, I think, started yeah. to get really good at two years, maybe a year ago. Did you have any observations about what worked in that medium that you kind of carry around now? Well, 10 years ago, I famously said something like, who needs social media? I thought it was a waste of time. So I, I was... Well, you were really prescient because it totally is a waste <laughs> of time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It may be a waste of time, but, f but from a business point of view, it's not. Sure. I mean, the things that are critical, you guys know this, is point of view. You need a, a very clear point of view. Two you have to come up with something that in 60 seconds tells a memorable story. And three, the type of recipe that you have, the right recipe will deliver 100 times more traffic than the recipe that's not right. It's not about how many recipes you create, it's finding just the right one. Like we, we've had recipes here where the video will do millions of views and we'll get thousands of people showing up for the recipe on the website an average recipe might be a tiny fraction of that. So getting really good at finding the little nut, the little thing that's, that catches your attention within the recipe is really critical. And, and how you position the recipe in the setup is like doing a podcast in 60 seconds. You, you gotta have a five second hook. You gotta have something intriguing. It's gotta be visually compelling. And this, it's got to deliver something you want by the end of the 60 seconds. So yeah. when you start, when you started in 2000, 2016, right? That was right when like Tasty was really taking off, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you, and maybe you've just been doing it for a long time so you don't get pulled because I saw so many people in that era get what I would call BuzzFeed envy. And everyone, BuzzFeed became the R&D lab of pretty much the digital media industry. When BuzzFeed would do something, everyone would copy it. Now it's the New York Times, but did you not get pulled into the, I think it was called hands and pans? Because it, it, pretty soon all of the food videos looked the same to me, at least on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, if you start going down that road of copying what's successful, you might as well just give up. I mean, that's not going to work because as you know, on Instagram, for example, things have a shelf life of three or four months, then there's the next iteration. 
So all you could do is go back to your core brand values, like Adam's family values, go back to your core values and figure out what's going to work within the context of what you are offering people that's distinctive. I mean, the first rule of media has to be deliver something nobody else is delivering. Because in, in a world that went from finite to infinite, if, if you are not offering something absolutely unique, you're just not going to survive. I mean, the, the New York Times is a good example of simply doing it better, but there are very few examples like that. So in our case, what is it we're going to put on Instagram or Facebook that is totally distinctive and you can't find somewhere else? That's the first question we have to ask, because otherwise you're just in a copycat situation and, and that never ends well. Yeah, but that's a, I think that's like the big theme of this podcast in some ways is the people versus algorithms because like the algorithm, there's a reason that all the YouTube videos look alike. There's the reason that every sort of thumbnail is surprise guy face, like because the algorithm is pushing that because when you get into optimization and you're following the data, the data clearly shows is showing everyone the direction to go in. And I, it's it's interesting as as the algorithms have been deployed in order to sort out like content and needed function, it's created actually not more diversity, but almost like a lot of sameness to me. Well, go back to 40 years ago. The algorithm in the magazine business was generate volume so you could generate more advertising revenue. So I, I did the opposite, which in the long run was, it turns out the right thing to do. But you have to almost do the opposite all the time because you're never going to survive in a Me Too environment because the choices are infinite. It goes back to the finite infinite. You know, magazines were monopolies, right, at, at Hearst. These were all monopolies. There were a handful of magazines. It cost $10 million to launch a magazine. The buried entry was too high. Now, now we're in an infinite universe. The buried entry is 10 bucks, and anybody can do it. So the only way to survive in that is to stay aligned with your core, and do things that are unique that nobody else can offer and screw the algorithm because you're just going to end up doing what everybody else does. I mean, the chances of being successful in a copycat algorithm mode are almost zero long term. Well, maybe certainly long term. But I think maybe that should be the title of the episode, Brian, Screw the Algorithm. I know. I already, I already made note of that, Troy. On, on that, I think just about going against the grain, to me, it seems... Cooking is really personality-based, and it always has been, and the algorithm loves personalities. So a lot of the cooking content I get exposed to, food and, and the recipe seems to take a, nearly a backseat. It's kind of setting to the personality. A lot of the stuff that Bon Appetit was doing was very personality-driven. Yeah, I don't, it's all true. And, and I don't think 90% of the audience ever made the food that was on there, but I remember watching America's Test Kitchen because I wanted to know how to make a pie. But it seems like you're going against that. And, and while I see personality and definitely yours you know, on Milk Street, you're fighting against that and maybe building a brand that is about the food. Are you noticing that the YouTubes and the Googles and, and wherever you exist is deprioritizing that type of content over a surprise face look at this weird hot wing I did? Because you, you get put into the food category either way as people search for things. How do you do search? How do you do? How do you get yourself up there? I think it's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think what you have to think about is ten years from now, are you going to still be around? And what is the way to get? What's the path that's going to give you the most success over a long period of time? So if all I'm worried about right now is optimizing my rankings on YouTube and going for personality-based content. Unless you have a strong, let's say, advertising proposition and you can monetize that quickly, and you're happy to take a two or three year time frame and monetize that and then get out, that's okay. But if you're a brand like mine, where we have lots of other parts, lots of other components, this is just one of them. The question is, what's going to serve the whole brand over a mm -hmm. long period of time best? And so, yeah, if I do a video, I'm much more likely to get a lot of views than anybody else at the company. And when I do, when I tell people they don't know shit about using garlic, you know, I get 10 million views because people love to get pissed off at me. Wait, what is it? I, I use a lot of garlic. Am I, what is you, Well, you're an asshole. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did Troy tell you that? <laughs> no, no, that's on a need-to-know basis. Mm. No, but just quickly, just a little sort of for a moment, Why? what's the problem with garlic, Chris? Because I know you when you do these contrarian things, people love them. How to cook eggs with oil? Well, in, in, or in Italy, in Italy, you never eat anything that's garlicky. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. And, and the reason is they'll take a clove or two of garlic, put it in the oil at the beginning. When it browns, they take it out and throw the garlic away. Yeah. And now they have oil slightly infused with the flavor of garlic. Anybody who cooks with a lot of garlicky food, you invite somebody over in Italy, they'll never come back again. Because for them, too much garlic is anathema. Now, there are other cultures. I was just in Romania where they like garlic. Yeah, other cultures like it. But the fact of the matter is Italian food is where a lot of people get their garlic hit from. In Italy, it's just a component that's supposed to be an idea. It's a hint. It's a suggestion of garlic. That's how you should use garlic. Because otherwise, it overpowers all the other flavors. And that's not the point. So anyway. Yeah. Perfect. And back to the show. Just back to your answer. It was a little bit of a setup for me because my big critique of media companies has been that there's too much of a knee-jerk reaction to whatever these platform asks you to do, right? And then these media companies wonder why their revenues are dropping, why they're losing right. audience. And I've been on both sides and I know exactly how it can be to just be a platform and tell a bunch of people to jump and all of a sudden they're jumping. I think there's a problem here. It's you're confusing two separate things. You think about volume of viewers because mm. you're monetizing that in mm -hmm. some way. Volume of viewers has nothing to do with the number of people who actually are attached to your brand long term. You can have 5 million followers on YouTube and six of those people actually would follow you into a paid content universe, right? Correct. Yeah. So you have to divorce volume from brand building yeah. and understand they're not the same thing. For, for a, a programmatic advertising, sure. But just because you have 5 million, I know people with 2 million viewers who make $50,000 a year, you know, have a hard time paying their rent. Right. So volume, it used to be volume meant something, I think, with magazine circulation at some point. Even then, even then you could say those were made up numbers. But today, I don't think volume means, it almost means nothing in terms Absolutely. of core brand. Yeah. yeah. Brian, did you have something? Sorry. Well, the only thing I was going to add, it echoes, I, I had this like executive dinner last week. I will not like include the sponsor because Troy doesn't like when I slide in my advertising. But, you know, this came up a lot because when, when you get traffic from a content rec ad network, a lot of times, like just because of your model, it says get as much as you can. You're never going to see this person ever again. It doesn't really matter. So you're incentives are not aligned long-term just because of your model. Your model is to get as much as you can, put as much mayonnaise on the sandwich until someone complains. You'll never see them again. Doesn't and this matter. is where you end up with a trash recipe site that is filled with ads. And It's why yeah. food sucks at like the all-inclusive resorts. Like There's no incentive for the food to be any good. You can tell them, Brian, it was Terminix that sponsored the deal, right? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. value add. Thank you, Troy. Yeah. Okay, Chris, so here's the thing. How old is Milk Street now? What, six years, something like that? Seven, Seven years, yeah. Seven years. There's a bunch of parts of the business. You still make a TV show. You make one of the most popular food podcasts in the country. I would encourage everyone to listen to it. It's amazing. You have a subscription media business, correct? Right. You have a cooking school, and then you have an e-commerce business that's much more than just selling somebody's olive oil or someone's spices. So like you're designing knives, you're manufacturing knives, you're buying them, you're putting them in a warehouse and you're sending them out to people. Right. And you're looking for the connections between all those things to try to, to get enough cash out of a consumer where you're not completely put underwater by the acquisition costs on a commerce sale, which is lethal. It's interesting you didn't mention anything about print. Oh, you got a magazine, right. And books. I love the magazine. Yeah. And books, I'm sorry. So six-year journey to get to the to question, what's been the, the hardest part of it this time? Because I'm sure it was hard last time. Like, what's been hard? What were your sort of realizations about how value is created in this wave? So it seems to me that a lot of things are the same. Brand, quality, long-term view, content integrity, all of that. But what's, what's different now? It's the marketing, really. Because if you go back to 1980, at that time in the 80s, I was able to build a brand very quickly in the 90s using direct mail marketing, right? I'd mail eight or 10 million pieces a year, generate a quarter million new customers over the course of a year. And that was a very predictable business. And you only had to mail three or four times a year. So it was a very But today slow. you build you build brand through advertising, I would argue. I do what? 
you build brand through advertising as well, you know, just a different kind of advertising. Right. But figuring out the, the digital world of advertising, both for the store and for the memberships, has been, you know, from building that from ground zero to understand that business. The, the good thing about that business is it does have leverage when you get it right. Mm-hmm. It's not infinite leverage, but there's leverage. And unlike direct mail, which was a very, the range was relatively small and how much volume you could do a year. The problem is every week it's different or every month it's different. So you're constantly having to rethink, rethink your creative, rethink your offer, rethink how you deal with Facebook and Instagram and all those other places. So managing that is 10 times more difficult than managing a direct mm-hmm. mail campaign, which is like falling out of bed. It's really simple. And then also, as Troy said, all that advertising is a brand promotion as well. It's not just selling a product. So you have to think about what you're doing in a way to build your brand because people see you on Facebook or wherever. At the same time, it's a direct response vehicle to sell a product. So you're doing two things at once and you got to think about those two things together, but also separately. But that's the hardest part. But unit cost management to me was a big realization for you, Chris. Because, you know, the way I grew up in the media business, whenever we got an insertion order, it was always money that was dropping at the bottom line, right? We had already paid for the product. So all that money was good. Now, when you sell a knife that has $30 of advertising cost associated with it, as well as $20 or $30 of product cost, it's just a different mindset around how you make money in the commerce world. Completely different. Well, let's be really clear. An information business with a paywall is the world's best business because you have no cost of goods. You've already paid for the content. You put it behind a paywall, and it's an 85% margin business going forward. And as long as you can get the volume, it's just a fabulous business. E-commerce is a hellish business by comparison because you have product cost, you have managing the warehouse, you have shipping costs, you have very difficult advertising environment where you have to manage that all the time. And so you end up with a much lower margin. The two things about it that make it worthwhile is it fills the top of your funnel. Now we do half a million sessions a month in the store if you're going to find a new customer, it's easier to find someone to buy a $20 jar of spices or garlic confit or whatever than it is to take a $70 membership, right? So it fills your top of funnel and it has leverage because if you get it right, you can generate a lot of volume. So it's lower margin. This is an important insight, folks. I, I think people might misunderstand. That's so important that basically... A well-functioning commerce business is your top-of-funnel business because it pays for your advertising. Yeah, and it gets people into the funnel where as they get more and more committed to your business, to your product, to your brand, they eventually will become a member of that brand. Mm -hmm. But the member's at the bottom of the funnel, not at the top. It used to be the member was the only thing I had to sell. So there was was no top-of-funnel and bottom-of-funnel. Now I, I can take a $10 or $20 product at the top of the funnel and end up with an $80 member at the bottom of the funnel. But that person's going to have to have six or seven interactions with me to get to the point they trust me enough to become a member. Okay. So it's less about like optimizing to be on like the third result for bulgogi recipe. Right. Like, cause that's less likely to, those people are not going to convert. Like if they just got there, just because you happen to rank highly for a specific. Uh, Optimizing search, unlike some business where that's everything is part of our business, but it's, yeah. it's not the driver. It's so obvious now that I hear you say it, because if you think at other companies, for example, Apple, the service subscription is right at the bottom of the funnel, because once you're kind of into the brand, into the product, you will get a service subscription. But yet you're seeing all these media companies trying to start the subscription at the top of the funnel. You're hearing about you know subscription fatigue, you know, you have all these newsletters that are just simply putting themselves behind a paywall and not providing a lot of value around it, around that, right? And so when I heard you say it, it sounded really counterintuitive until I started thinking about non-media companies doing this, you know, very successfully, right? Subscription is at the bottom. Apple's a good example. So Chris, I know you got to run, maybe just lastly, I have two questions, just sort of fun stuff. Do you have a preferred cuisine now that you've tasted foods from all around the world, you travel and do a lot of the research personally. What stood out to you? Where do you want to go back? What do you want to make tonight? You do even cook. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I really do. It's gonna be a scandal. I, it's all takeout. Man. It's gonna put this podcast on the map. It's all takeout. Uh, yeah, I do cook a lot. Uh, not during the week because I eat all the food in the kitchen during the day, but on the weekend. It's like saying which of my kids do I love the most. I'm sorry, there, Whitney. It's Whitney. Good, well, good point. There's no answer to that. We, we, I was just in Romania last week, and what you find is little bits and pieces of things. You go like, oh, that's really cool. You know, I, I could use that. So it's not so much a function of... Is the wit- food good in Romania? It doesn't seem good to me. What, what's good about Romanian food? Fried bread slathered with sour cream and cherry preserves. What's not to like? Come on. Yeah, they make a lot of soups, actually, chorpa, which are really good. But anyway, so it's not so much that. It's like finding this here and finding that there, and you bring it back and bring it into your cooking. So it's not so much the recipes themselves... It's what's underneath the recipes, how people think about food. That's the part that gets really interesting. So, mm-hmm. And what's your favorite, what product in your store are you most proud of? What's selling well and what are you proud of actually? Yeah. Well, the knives, which are all based on Japanese knives, the Nikiri is our best seller. It's a vegetable knife. Love he, that knife. He kind of looks like a Chinese cleaver, but half as deep, two inches deep instead of four. Very thin blade, slices through fruits and vegetables. That's really been our flagship product but it's all of the knives because <laughs> I, w- I was in spain years ago at a knife factory and i went to their museum and it turns out the uh, european chef's knife is a dagger literally it's a dagger it was designed as a dagger that's what it came out of that history so they all sell themselves because they're heavy they have big thick blades which are useless for cooking and so the heavier more dangerous the knife the more you charge for it right i mean that's the whole gestalt in Japan, it's all about lighter knives, thinner blades, more control. They have dozens of different knives for specific purposes instead of one knife fits all. So that's really, for me, what's so interesting is that the entire history of the European chef's knife is completely bogus. I am it's so. A, it's a terrible design. I'm so wait, happy you wait. say that. Wait, wait, hang on, because this is, a, a, this is an issue at my house. I think we have too many kitchen knives that are what I call stabby knives. I yeah. don't understand why we, you need the pointy end. It's a pain in the ass yeah. to clean. And I use all these like Nikiri it's because style. you're yeah. you're the token European. When was the last time you had to stab a piece of food as you were cooking it? I feel so validated. This is yeah. amazing. This was definitely worth it for me. You, you can take a European chef's knife and put it in your boot. I say, and when you walk around to defend yourself, <laughs> exactly, that's, where you go. Yeah. that's what they were for. It was a context. You're near for- San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. You're the best, Chris. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. This was fantastic. Very nice. Really wonderful. You. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. That was fantastic, man. Wasn't it? Well, what was good about that guy's is he's very yeah. smart, and he had like you know if you were going to pull singers out. There was like five zingers in there, like incredible observations. Yes, absolutely. Are you not counting the one about me being an asshole? Well, I mean, that's, that's the, the obvious right? one here, no. but we had some. <laughs> no, that's his character. That's his. My favorite is yeah, your sponsor for your dinner is ter- Terminix. But no, that was no. Good. I thought I, th- I thought I thought there were some. I always like this this kind of insights from from different sectors. I mean, because like what he's saying is it's funny because I think on some levels it's like very basic of, but at the same time it's rare. Meaning it's basic, like you have to create something unique and you can't just be blindly following algorithms. And yet at the same time, for a period that was very rare. It really was. Like everyone was chasing after the same thing. And I understand the short-term pressures. And I think in some ways you still see it. And I think a lot of it is because people don't have a point of view and don't have the courage to follow a point of view. And it's just safer to follow the data. And follow what the algorithms say. Yeah, I mean, I think also that it with two things happen. One is people wanted to grow media businesses at a rate that was maybe unnatural. You know, building fandom person by person takes a long time. And then there was a period of time when we were, I don't know, we I, we just thought about scaling digital media businesses much more rapidly as being yeah. kind of disruptive entities. And to do that, you have to play the game of the platforms. And so that's where that idea is. Right. It's because everybody had tech envy. Tech envy and, and venture money. And Do you know the amount of yeah. people that came to visit Airbnb that were from media to see how we were doing things? And you're kind of like... Yeah. Did Axel Springer show up? I mean, I'm sure they did at some point, but... 
just the economics being completely different. And you think that if you can kind of figure out the mojo there and everybody got blindsided by the fact that scale is the business to be in. And the problem is the more you get into the scale business, the more your audience also becomes filled with like bots and all sorts of scams that are just trying to kind of feed off this, the scale hack, right? So it was refreshing. I mean, he obviously knows what he's doing. Yeah. So one of the things that he was saying that has really resonated, I did a, a podcast that I published today, actually, on the Rebooting Show. It was from one of these like true media, media operators in the newsletter space, and it's called 1440. And it's all, it's all paid acquisition, right? And he has a very clear LTV. He knows that each person that he buys as a subscriber, that he's going to make five cents per open. It's a 14-person company, media company with over $1 million per employee, which I remember I asked you, Troy, this, like, what, what, did you, what was your like, revenue per employee? You're like, we didn't think about that. We just thought That's about like, that. That sounds like tech revenue, $1 million. Yeah, I know. It's. I mean, I obviously it doesn't scale, Who cares? et cetera. But Who cares? Like, well, if you look at the TAM. No, but a, a million per is very high. He comes from private equity. And I think a lot of times, like, there's a lot of advantages to people from different fields coming in. And I think what we're going to see, particularly the big impact of subscriptions, is forcing publishers. It's a force function that you got to think about LTV. Forget about CPM. You got to think about LTV. And that's a different, I think that's different. Troy, Troy saw me ways, say that at a meeting, and I know it sounds pretty obvious, but LTV is the only thing you should care about. And if you don't have enough data in the beginning, then you should have a target. And then the more data you get, the more clear that target should become. But LTV is the only, if you're measuring anything, that's the only thing you should aim to measure. There's nothing else. So this major publisher, I and mean, we, we do it under Chatham House rules, so I can't, uh, I can't say which one. Got lots of secrets today, Brian. Lots was of talking about like sneaky secrets. Pre-roll. No, I know, I know. That's it. Well, that, that adds mm. a little bit of the intrigue. Was talking about how they stopped showing pre-roll ads to subscribers. And the reason is the data showed that getting people engaged with video was like one of the top drivers of mitigating churn. So from an LTV basis, they were actually, it, it wasn't worth the CPMs that they were getting for video ads, which are the highest CPMs on the internet, but it still wasn't worth it because they had a clear LTV and that was pushing them to actually have a better user experience. Amazing, amazing. I believe that. I had that firsthand experience today when I tried to understand the actual programmatic model of a weather site. It's just desperation trying to get me to click a play button on video. So, you know, you have this small window of opportunity. What's the temperature? And then trying to get someone to, to click How a video. How many ad clicks did you, did you have? Well, but what I found <laughs> is a 30-second pharma ad in front of a video that I really don't want to watch that badly. I kind of would watch it maybe, but I don't want to watch it that badly. Is completely untenable. All it makes me do is run away. And They're so, running towards an extinction event, and that's going to be accelerated by AI. Because the more bullshit, you, if you're talking about brand loyalty, way to destroy it. You know, good way to destroy it is to like make the experience so miserable that any affinity you might have to the brand is is quickly destroyed. And then I have no problem using an AI summarizer to just get all my content. Don't be so mean. Don't be so mean. There's people whose livelihoods are attached to it. Right, us. but then start start doing the job. Okay. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, sounds awful. <laughs> no, it's great. What did you think of Chris Kimball, Alex? Did you, did you get a man crush? Would you do like? <laughs> I like him a lot. I used to watch a lot of America's Test Kitchen, and I'm, I'm no, you're not close to sixty years old. I didn't watch really? it, but I, I did read Cook's Ocean. Yeah, I think a lot of yeah. that content. I mean, I, I still watch America's Test Kitchen on YouTube and the current incarnation, and a lot of cooking content in general. I love like personalities like Maddie Matheson and stuff like that. But I will like check out Milk Street, which hasn't been on my radar until till we decided to talk to Chris. Do you know what's a very popular genre on Instagram is have you ever seen, and it's always guys, they like haul all their kitchen equipment out into like yeah. the woods and they like they do the same cooking videos, but with yeah. a giant cleaver. And I ended up buying the thing. It's like totally worthless. They're always like flipping the onion up in the air. And yeah, it, it's, I, I think the biggest takeaway I take from this conversation with Chris is that stabby kitchen knives are not that useful. And I was right. Like nobody, <laughs> I don't understand. But in the carry, I use it all the time. I love it. It comes in two sizes. It's yeah. not expensive, but maybe we can sell knives. Should we move to our final segment? What's Oh yeah, have, there's more. Well, yeah, we should have a good product or a view from whatever. It's I don't have a view from Pre-Economy. Oh, okay. 
I, I made a fucking jingle for nothing. I flew why. premium economy down here. Oh, it's for for premium economy. I come up with something. No, we'll bring one to next week. Make it make it. Ed count. Bastian is retreating on his ill thought out plan to change up Sky Miles in a cash grab. And then what I liked when he came out with the fact that they're backtracking. It sounds like a unity situation. Yeah, he said the teams got like a little aggressive. I was like the teams. So let me get this straight. It's like your entire business is this loyalty program, Mr. CEO. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, what's going on here? I got to fix Did this. Did he really say that? He really said this. The teams, like, that maybe got too. That is a fireball offense as a CEO to blame your team for it. That's the whole job is to take all the shit from. from I mean, not good. No, at least he didn't, you know, cite an individual. That's true. Yeah, teams. You know, <laughs> Janice thought that it was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Janice, I think he was being inclusive, Alex, and he was referring to all the oh, good man. work that the people did. And even but he acted like he just like showed up from vacation, and he Try was like, always Who ready did to this? take a bullet for some random CEO that yeah. just did some. <laughs> <laughs> some some guy in Atlanta. Oh, by the way, speaking of taking bullets for CEOs, did you see that I trended on on threads with a reposting a beautiful video that Elon posted on Twitter with a ring of fire and the X rotating in the middle? I don't have anything better to do than make fun. No, that really. I'm just threads. I'm building my own audience. My, I'm yeah. using my Elon derangement syndrome to to build an audience. Elon, guys, he's an exceptional human being, but he's a goofball. And someone sent him a rotating logo that explodes into flames or something, and he posted it on Twitter. They didn't make that. That wasn't made with a brief. I can guarantee you that. Someone sent it to Some him. meme lord, 15-year-old yeah. in Romania. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Who's a self-proclaimed Tesla fan and loyalist. Just like you. I mean, I own everything he's ever made. Like, I'm not like... That's true. It, is the question, you know... Does no, my question is, is he, I think he's shown... He's had these kind of events where he's shown a certain type of taste. I don't want to say a lack of taste, but he has a very specific taste. And I wonder how much taste, it was just an interesting question. Maybe we can do an episode about it. How much taste is important in leadership and how taste actually gets applied to the company you run? I don't think the word is taste, it's sensibility. What he lacks is a sensibility. Like he does not like... Trump does not have taste, but Trump has sensibility. And I know people hate to hear that, but he has a sensibility of like what will resonate. He's been I mean, that's way why you voted so for many him twice. different things about where people are. That is well, that's why I moved to Florida mostly. To be closer to the great man. You know, I think that what Elon does, I'm calling him Elon Musk, what he lacks is a sensibility. I think that's it. It's just off and call it neurodiverse or whatever. All it's right, we're going to do an episode called Taste and Sensibility. It's going to be amazing. And we're all going to wear Victorian dresses for it. Okay, that's good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> all right. That's great. Good. Do, you, do you have a good product? I hadn't thought about my, well... I hadn't thought, you know, I can usually pull oh, yeah? one out. A shirt. One thing, you know, my wine friends. Shoes. <laughs> oh, no. I have fancy wine friends. I mean, when you and, prepare, we get like a grape, so I don't know what. <laughs> and I'm as a get, and now I'm in favor of preparation. Sure. Sparkling water. Yeah. My keys. How about orange wine? I love orange wine. I find it quaffable. You know, that's skin contact. They keep the skin on so the wine turns kind of orangey. But it's, you know, often. Sounds like it, a mimosa. No, 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 no. It's like, you know, it's it's better than rosé. Orange wine? That's known to be bullshit. No, no, no. It's a type of Widely wine made known. from white grape varieties, and they're fermented with their oh. skins. Oh, so it's not orange. And apparently the winemaking style is yeah. old, 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 but it's popular among fans of natural natural wines. I love okay. it. I think it's great. I mean, obviously it varies by producer, yeah. but I... It's All right. Great. You know what else I like, Alex? What? I like perfectly frothed milk oh. in my latte. Well, I'm lactose intolerant, so that means nothing to me. <laughs> you know what I hate in my coffee is almond milk. Oh. Yuck. Because it doesn't, you can't froth it. Yeah. I hate hair <laughs> in my coffee. Hair. You have a lot of it. Yeah. I have a lot of it right now. So when you have a beard like mine, you'll sometimes find hair in your coffee. This is probably where we should wrap it up. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. I thought it was a good episode. Yeah, I think the best product was a little flat this week. A little flat. <laughs> I mean, you. Fuck, good luck, you Vanya. Yeah, exactly. You didn't do anything for that one. No, that was good. I think we'll keep it. I think we'll keep improving with with the guests. Wait, I'll get the guests. I'll write the questions, and I'll come up with best product. Troy, you're finally starting yeah. to contribute. You're I like that. To pull your weight. That's good. Well, audience is growing, and so please rate and review us on iTunes. It does help with the algorithm. Follow me on Threads at Alexoy. Is that true? One hundred percent. I don't think it's true. I just like it from 
my ego. I mean, unless it calls me an asshole. We also want it for that ego. We thank our fans and everybody sharing and reviewing. You're in media. Stop being so shy about promoting yourself. What the fuck's going on? No, I'm just being realistic. Really? Yeah, fans implies the level of loyalty that we have. We have fans, let me tell you. It's okay. Right. Look at that. He blu- he's blushing. Brian's blushing. Brian, you've, you've never had fans before? You don't know what that me? is? Oh, no, we have fans. I have tons of fans on LinkedIn. I, if I read the, the in-mails that I get each week, the, it would make you blush. I appreciate and love all of you. Thank you for the kind words. It's like that lyric, it's not the band I hate, it's their fans. Oh, yeah, no, they're, they're <laughs> terrible people. But okay, well, thank you very all much. Right, see guys. you guys at Advertising Week next week. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll be there for sure, for sure, for sure.